0: Hello everybody, this is Cortland from ndhackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are now and what goes on behind the scenes, with the goal being that the rest of us can learn from their example. Today I'm talking to Ruben Pressman, the founder of a company called Presence. Ruben came recommended to me by Rachel Carpenter, she's the CEO of a company called Entrenio and I had her on the podcast a few weeks back. If you haven't listened to that episode, by the way, I recommend that you do, Rachel's awesome. But anyway, Rachel said, Cortland, you should look into this company called Presence and talk to the founder, Ruben Pressman. He's absolutely killing it and I think he would make a great guest for the podcast. Now at that point, I'd never actually heard of Presence, but the more I started reading about it and about Ruben, the more I realized that Rachel was right and that I should definitely have this guy on the podcast. Ruben is an impressive figure who's succeeded at doing some very difficult things. And that ranges anywhere from learning to do enterprise sales to gigantic school systems to building a mission-driven company where the ideals and goals come first, which is much easier said than done, and doing all of this from St. Petersburg, Florida, which if you've never heard of it, that's because it's the furthest thing away from a major tech hub. I really enjoyed listening to what Ruben had to say. I think you guys will enjoy hearing his story too. So without further ado, let's get into it. I'm here with Ruben Pressman. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Ruben.
1: Of course. Thanks for the invite.
0: So you're the CEO of Presence, a tech company in the education space. Can you give us a sense of how you got started as an entrepreneur and specifically with Presence?
1: Basically, I, I've been—I mean—a good story to go along with it. I've been programming since I was ten, so I've always had a very um, big background in technology, and always been passionate about how technology can help solve um, either very small or very big problems. Um, and it's become so accessible that there's lots of resources available to make it possible to build something. And um, I've also kind of labeled myself as a as a compulsive problem solver. If it's, something's broken, I must fix it. And those two things go very nicely together. And typically those things align with a passion that I have or something I'm very involved with or have experienced myself. And for presence, um, that was my experience in uh, student government, in my undergrad, and as staff in um, student affairs. And from a student government perspective, most people don't realize, but. Student governments typically have a lot of authority and autonomy at their universities and colleges. Um, and they're, they're typically in charge of allocating millions of dollars potentially. At, at a large school like the University of Central Florida, by us here, their student government's in charge of allocating $25 million a year. Whoa. And that causes all, yeah, exactly. I have no idea. <laughs> that, yeah, so that causes all kinds of interesting, um, problems and issues and difficulties. Um, Because you basically have college students, which at heart are still learning and getting real-world experiences, but they could be freshmen, they could be sophomores, so they literally have a a high school diploma and some experience interacting with people, but they're responsible for helping allocate that much money. And um, that money is supposed to go towards interactive events, experiences, initiatives, departments and services on campuses in a division called Student Affairs, and it's basically the other side of the institution besides Academic Affairs. So think everything with the Student Union, um, any type of intramural, all the student clubs and organizations, all of residential life, all of that.
0: So how do you guys at Presence fit into this giant mass of Student Affairs being in charge of millions of dollars?
1: What we focus on, and while there's companies like Blackboard and other learning management systems and tools from an academic side, there is a huge amount of data lacking on the student affairs side. And we realized that data was the core problem to everything from getting students involved to allocating something like $25 million a year to retaining students, um, as well as assessing and understanding what's going on and reporting some of this data that's now starting to be required more often. For institutions, so we focused on on the data problem there, and uh, I always start that way, just you know, as a you know, it's kind of side tip when I'm when I'm pitching something like this or any company, and when I work with other entrepreneurs, is you should be solving problems, right? And that's that's really where our focus is, and, and that's where we differ a lot from others in the market industry, especially for education, is because. Uh, Education is so big and vast that you can obviously roll something out that's helpful and people will use it, but we're focused on solving really important problems. So we always start there from a focus and the way we solve it is that deeper problem is data. So um, we started with a way to swipe and collect the information of what students are doing and all of these things to begin with. So we have a device just like Square and it plugs into iOS and Android phones and tablets and lets you swipe students into every single thing they can participate on the campus outside the classroom. So Anything from, like I said, Light to student union events to your murals to student club organizations to activities board and student government and health and wellness and tutoring and it keeps going on.
0: Yeah, that sounds vast. And I have a lot of questions to ask that I'm sure we'll get into about how you go about building something like that and selling it.
1: It gets crazy. So we, you know, so we, so we start there. It's, it's, if we can collect this data, we can do so much with it and help them solve those and a bunch of other problems. And it's really turned into an entire platform. Everything from uh, a ton of back end tools that allow organizations to stay organized with all of their membership, their rosters, their documents, their history, their communication. We have an entire event management system that's basically like Eventbrite, but for your campus and your organizations that has custom approval workflows built in and integrates with all the space reservation tools they use. And then we have a form builder, if anyone's familiar with Wufu or Google Forms or Typeform. We do all the stuff they do, but we add a whole bunch of other logic and conditional logic and integrations into other products and process management and workflow with those that allow them to really replace any paper form and process they have on campus with information in our system integrated with the other pieces. And on the mobile, we're, we're, we're tracking, we do some other cool features like, poll, like polls, live polls, signing with your finger waivers, Um, And then really where our bread and butter is, is taking all the tracking information we have, all the information structured for the specific events and things they're participating in, and we combine that with the student information system data that the institutions already have. So things like age, and gender, and race, and major, and class, and so many more, as many as 80 different types of attributes about students, we import in and then give them real-time, super great visual reports and analytics that allow them to, in real time, see the types of trends and behaviors students are doing, how that relates to financial allocation, the retention correlations, And then we top all that off with a mobile app and a website that's custom branded, that's automatically built from all of the experiences the institution's creating for their students. So now they have one location to go to instead of uh, emails and flyers around campus, and word of mouth and social media and all these different places. They have one spot they know they can go to get the most updated information about what's going on. Um. So we had that and uh, we launched it back in May of 2014 after um, spending almost a year building the initial product, testing it, working with some very close institutions with it, iterating it and getting it to a point that made sense to start talking more broadly and publicly about it. Um. So just over three years, we're now at uh, over 110 institutions in about 35 different states in three different countries.
0: Wow. Is that three years since you started Presence as a whole or three years since that last particular product that you were talking about?
1: No, so three years is since we launched that full, pro- well, since, since, since we launched the MVP of the product that we had already done some iterations with some close campuses with and kind of beta tested.
0: When was your like original start date? Like when did you first start working on Presence?
1: Um, like late 2012 um, is when we really got like the team together and said, all right, let's do this.
0: Okay, so it's been about like it's been about four, four and a half years. And just to give the listeners some context, I want to ask you to reveal your revenue numbers, but can you give us some measure of your progress so far and where you're at as a company in terms of employee sizes and you said you're at one hundred and ten institutions?
1: We have basically double institutions every year or so. We've also close to double employees every year or so. Uh, investments almost tend to run about the same as well. So we're at 22 employees now. We're on track to be at about 30 by the end of the year. Uh, we're at 100, just over 110 institutions, again, in 35 different states and a few different countries. And then we've raised uh, just under $2 million of uh, funding so far.
0: You mentioned earlier that uh, education is vast, and I think everyone would agree with that. It's also fraught with problems. And everybody has different opinions on how to fix them. I think partly because the educational system affects all of us, like we've all been through it in some way or, or another. And then also in part because it's so complex and opaque that anybody can come up with a solution and it's hard to see why it won't work. So it just feels good tossing out solutions. How did you personally decide which problems to tackle? Because and there's so many factors that can that can play into that. You can decide based on your own personal passions and mission, you can decide based on, you know, what's the most viable way to make your business work? Because at the end of the day, you need to generate sales. What led you to decide that you're going to go into the student affairs part of education versus other parts?
1: Yeah, to me, it's got to be a balance of those things. You can't go into something just because it's viable. It's going to be hard to wake up every day and put 110% into that. But it's also extremely hard to come in every day just because you're passionate about something and not get anywhere because it's not viable. So I think there's going to be a pretty strong balance between those. You know, I think especially with how some of the larger cities like fund companies and focus on growth, they care more about the passion than they do the viable piece of it because they know that if they can build an audience around something, you know, adding products onto that or adding the viable piece of that can be a lot easier. But it's, it's, it's a huge balance. And for me to focus on student affairs was because of my passion with that, because of my direct experience and knowledge and what I, what I believe was a very unique viewpoint and where i saw a lot of things being missed and the incorrect problems being framed and focused on so i always come out these types of problems and even picking problems very uh philosophically and then you know figuring out the most simple uh, and that mvp is that big word which i'm sure if anyone's listening to indie hackers they know what that means but for those that don't it's minimum viable product right it's the simplest um, product you can create that still holds value and solves a problem for a person that would be willing to at least exchange some amount of value they own for that and uh, that's our focus with everything and whether it's how we chose to start or whether it's how we do it now i have a i have a huge product roadmap both in my head and obviously written down of where we'd love to see everything go but that constantly gets impacted by our existing customers and by our prospects and helps us weigh and prioritize where we want to go and where they feel they need to go. So, um, you know, the reason it took us so long to launch that initial product, or I guess not take so long at all, to me that's exactly how it should be, um, is there was a lot of research to be done. We didn't want our biases and experiences to run the entire um, initial products. We talked to as many people as we could. We iterated the product, we watched people use it. I mean, even after we launched our first few paying customers, I personally was at every single one of those institutions when they were using the product for months and longer, even in the first year, to, to watch how they were using it, make sure it made sense, um, you know, ask them tons of questions and all the learning we could. And we still do. It's just at a different scale to assess and decide what to be adding the platform, what to build, what problems to solve, all of that.
0: That's a lot of work. And I, I really like what you said about not wanting to inject your own biases and personal opinions into the product because you're not representative of how everybody's going to use it. So you need to spend like those months on campus watching people use it and you know tweaking the models that you guys have for what makes your product useful. I think that's something that number 1 a lot of people underestimate the importance of. It's very easy to get in your own head and think that okay, your vision for, you know, the user interface for your product and the features that are important are going to be what everybody else finds useful. And number 2, I think a lot of people don't have the time <laughs> to spend months or years talking to people and tweaking something without actually getting a product out the door that makes money. How did you guys fund your early efforts in doing this? Did you raise money right off the bat or were you riding off of the profits of some earlier venture?
1: That's yeah, a great question. Um, no, I'm always envious of those that, uh, you know, sell a venture, get profits from a venture and are able to say, well, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, really do this next one, right? And it's like, okay, cool, great. That sounds really convenient. Um, no, so I um, am kind of in the middle of that and very fortunate to have decided to start learning how to program and also do design at a professional level very early on. And have kind of always had side projects that I was helping others build. And as I graduated and wanted to transition to my company at some point knew that I wanted to stay flexible. So I didn't go get a job. I started an agency with a couple friends that had the same vision in mind. One was, you know, wanted to be a full-time artist and that's even more difficult in my opinion, but was a great illustrator and graphic designer as well. So we kind of teamed up and said, let's help other people build their products and get their stuff out. And we basically worked double time, built up a lot of savings and, uh, kind of because we had flexible hours, we were working part time on our own things as well as working together on the other people's and then got to a point where I felt comfortable enough with what I had saved up and uh, eased out of that and transitioned the time into full time with this right around the same time we started closing our first one or two schools. And once we had that, we were at the point where I could go to some investors that I'd already been talking to and I have all kinds of philosophy around how, how that process can work as well.
0: You like consulted your way into bootstrapping your way into raising money.
1: Basically, yeah. And and we, we ended up getting those first few customers on board, got the uh, investors to buy in once we had that. And I raised, it was under 100 k it was our first seed round, which brought myself and three others on full time to um, take a stab at, at doing what we needed to do.
0: That's so unheard of, and I live like in downtown San Francisco, and there's no way a hundred under 100k would get, you know, four people on full time.
1: <laughs> well, that's that's the biggest difference with you know location too, and everyone loves being in San Francisco because likewise you could walk into or get meetings at much more easily with the huge amount of investors that are out there, or get connections to other tech companies or whatever that is. The difference here is. Costs are lower, but opportunities are much, much lower exponentially compared to the cost of living differences. So if you don't have one of the very few connections to resources here, it's close to impossible. And most of my friends that run other companies end up leaving. It's getting a lot better now. I used to say that more like three, four years ago. Now we're, you know, we've started seeing a lot more increase because we've had a few big wins here. But uh, the only reason I was able to raise money is because I interned with the only tech accelerator we had here when I was in school. I sat on 15 different nonprofit boards this, after the year I graduated. I got involved with every startup there was and just got to know everyone. And, you know, I'm, I'm maybe one of 15 to 20 people that have had it easier raising any type of funding here.
0: So you just networked the shit out of it, basically. Yeah, I did. Would you Would you <laughs> consider yourself an extrovert?
1: Oh, yeah, I rank like 98% extroverted. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time. Uh, and actually, I always like to point out extroverted versus introverted is not how going or any of that you are. It's where you get your energy from, right? Uh, because I'm so extroverted, if I'm alone, I get absolutely nothing done. You
0: have to network. You don't have an option. I
1: have to be around people. Like if I ever come in the office and no one's here, I probably get half the work done if at least someone was like up in the like upstairs with me or around the space with me. <laughs> So there's pros and cons. <laughs>
0: so you mentioned, uh, you said a few words earlier about a minimum viable product. What was the minimum viable product that you had in mind right when you started working on Presence?
1: Yeah, and it's actually pretty close to what we launched, and I wanted, I definitely wanted to bring that up earlier, so I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, the original ideas was, let's swipe IDs on mobile phones and give people lists of students coming in, connected with the demographics we knew they already had with like a really simple uh, event thing. So it was basically create an organization, what the organization's name was literally what the form was, and then create an event with a few details about it. And then boom, there you go. Now you can go in the app and you can um, you know put in the details for the event you did that you just made and start swiping people in. And that's all it was.
0: And, and what IDs are these, like student IDs or driver's licenses? They're the student IDs that they already have. Yep. No. So for for us, um, because of it being an
1: institution, working with such a huge range of students, accessibility, all of that stuff, we of course would love to do things like eye beacons and and inauditory frequencies and all kinds of different stuff. And while we're doing R and D on those projects and things like, uh, we have digital IDs that you can use. The big selling point to the institutions is not changing the behavior of their students and not requiring them to do anything different to get involved. So they all have to carry an idea, they all have one. We just integrate with that type of idea we
0: have. It sounds like you were aware of, of kind of what institutions needed early on. And I think one of the uh, the bigger questions a lot of people have when they're trying to figure out what to work on is, okay, do I need to have expertise in a particular area before I start working on a business there, or should I just do whatever I'm most passionate about, even if I don't necessarily know? And it sounds like you you aired towards the former, where you had had experience and inside these campus groups and student affairs. And so you knew kind of what problems they were facing and what types of solutions they were more likely or less likely to adopt. Is that accurate to say?
1: Yeah, I think you definitely need, need both. I don't, I mean, and, and I went to school for entrepreneurship. So I had a lot of this stuff drilled into my head. And there are concepts that I think are, are pretty intuitive, but having it spelled out and, and talking about theory and entrepreneurship is a whole other level. So one of the questions that I always ask with new entrepreneurs that others always ask of me early is, why are you the person to do this, right? And, and that comes from an expertise side, like why are you going to be successful over somebody else doing the same thing, right? And it's, it's less like, well, what's stopping Google from doing this? And those, those to me are always useless questions. But the, the important question from an expertise level is why are you the person that's going to be the most successful building this? and there should be some type of, of level of knowledge or something unique that you see in the market differently than anybody else. And still, we have competitors in the market that um, were much bigger than us that have now started trying to copy what we're doing. We have other startups that are coming after us, trying to do it, but because they don't approach it with the same philosophy, they're just looking at the features we have, people don't understand it. It doesn't make sense and they're not able to connect it. And for, for me, it's it's having that deep understanding of that market, which I think you can really only get if you're passionate about it, because it's so hard to get ingrained and go deep into a topic when you're not interested in it. So I think those things go very much hand in hand.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned competitors just copying your features without understanding the underlying reasons uh, of why you're actually building those features. So they're, they're copying you blind. And it, it always reminds me of situations where You see two companies that don't even know what they're doing copying each other. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people working on coming up with an idea run into this problem where they can't identify any particular area of expertise to draw from. Let me put you on the spot here and ask you to imagine a hypothetical world in which all of your knowledge and memory about education has been completely wiped. So you're not allowed to start a startup in the educational space here because you don't know anything about it. What process would you go through to decide what kind of company you want to build? And do you think you would take the time to develop expertise in an area first, or would you just dive right in?
1: That's an awesome question, and I, uh, I feel like I'm already prepped for that answer because I've, you know, I'm definitely a serial entrepreneur. I, I don't know how long I'll be doing this one for, but, you know, because I'm that way, I'm always thinking about what could be next. And so I'll approach this the same way I I I would when I get to that point, and it would be my, my plan is to throw myself in as many new and complicated experiences as I can. I I want to be able to start. I want to be able to travel the world, but through third world countries and through really big problems that you know I try to move away from these first world problems and and uh, um, you know things that just help people that don't really need help overall. So for me, it would be getting involved and putting myself in experiences that make me uncomfortable, that get me the ability to learn things and empathize and get a great understanding of what other people are going through, and then start looking at deep understandings of those problems and being able to then look at the possible solutions for those. And I phrase that very carefully because when I say deep problems, I mean that most problems are very surface level and even big problems are. So I can relate that to what we're doing now. The surface level problems for what we do are student engagement's low, retention's hard, assessment's difficult, allocating financials is hard, but the underlying deep problem, multiple layers, is missing an ability to understand data. So for these other problems, it's realizing that the problems you typically see or feel are usually caused by something deeper. And when you can solve that, then you're solving those and many other problems and you're hitting that kind of deeper value there. And it gives you a different frame to approach what you're building. Um, and I phrase uh, solutions plural because there's always, I don't care what you say, always multiple ways to solve any problem. And it's playing with all of those, understanding them, talking to your audience, getting input, testing them out to get to the one that's going to make the most sense, but also realizing that you could get to a point and still be wrong.
0: Yeah, I really like what you said about there always being multiple solutions to a problem because I talked to so many people who I think have it mixed up. They're afraid to build something that solves a problem that's already been solved because they think, well, then nobody will have a reason to use my product. When in reality, if you see people paying for a solution to a problem, that's validation. That tells you that, hey, this problem is painful enough for people to pay for a solution. Just having that validation can save you years of heartache caused by building a solution to a problem that nobody cares about. So I definitely don't think you should run from already solved problems, but instead you should find a way to solve those problems in your own unique way that differentiates you from competitors. So that might be you're solving it better than them, or faster, or cheaper, or you're targeting a different niche. The other thing you said that I really liked was that you want to get away from solving surface-level, first-world problems. And I'm curious, how does that play into what you're doing at Presence? And how do you assess whether or not you're actually fulfilling your mission?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think education is one of the biggest problems worldwide. We're obviously focused on the U.S. because it's what we know and where we're starting. But like I mentioned, we're in other countries as well. We have a school that's using us in Pakistan, for example. Um, so for me, I mean, education, as you mentioned even even earlier, touches so many pieces of society. It's directly um, impacting every type of class of person and helping level the playing field. Um, it's providing a future and bigger opportunities for people to change the way their lives are. And, uh, you know, to me that's impacting everything from how educated our entire country is and how we can solve other problems because we have a more educated workforce or society. It not only builds hard skills that relate to those directly, but soft skills like social skills that help with communication, period. That help people have a better understanding of each other and, you know, especially in this kind of political climate. But uh, it also helps from a workforce standpoint. And we know with jobs and how important that is. We know about the skills gap. We know about all of the things that other problems that exist, like jobs in the country and even the world, that education is the only way that you're going to be able to really make a dent on that. Is getting more educated, more focused people that are going to be able to you know help and solve uh, that jobs and workforce problem uh, for everybody. So I see it as being... Again, kind of another deeper underlying problem with many other bigger ones in the country and the world um, that we're focusing in our unique way on solving.
0: Yeah, and I think there it kind of highlights dichotomy between some of the high growth, uh, super highly funded companies you see coming out of typically places like Silicon Valley, and then the people that I talk to on indie hackers who are more often than not not in some sort of tech hub. They're all over the place. They're in Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, and there's a part of me that hopes that the people and these places that are more typical of, of what regular people in the world are going through are better positioned to solve real problems.
1: They are. That's the that's the issue with the Valley and like Austin and Boston and Chicago and all those main tech cities is that even the even the investors in, in those cities are starting to branch out. So we're one of our investors is five hundred startups in, in in the Valley. Um, they've only recently and a lot of other funds started trying to invest in companies outside of the Bay areas so in California and it's because they know everyone over there is extremely biased and They're they're focused on only the problems they can experience I mean Jack Dorsey for example is known for riding the bus between work and and the two companies he's trying to run because it's the only Way he can stay connected to anything in the real world without having something digital filtering or showing of that so yeah being in a place that isn't just hardcore tech and whatever you could ever want in the palm of your hand anytime, every day, delivered to you. And I think it's a huge benefit, absolutely.
0: Another challenge, I think, with running a mission-driven company is being able to hire skilled employees who are on the same page as your mission. Because everybody's at least somewhat self-interested. And no matter how much they align with their company's goals or your mission, if they don't feel like they're valued highly enough or paid well enough, then they won't take the job, or at least they won't stay for very long. So what's your take on what it means to be a mission-driven company and essentially a capital-driven society? And how do you go about aligning your company's goals with your own personal goals and the personal goals and incentives of your employees?
1: I think culture is extremely important with that. So I don't think it's just monetary and especially for you know our generation and where a lot of business is shifting and where large corporations and people are having uh, a hard time even is that people care about the mission and what's happening a lot more than they used to, and um, you know along with other important things like room for growth and obviously some type of minimum. But I see people a lot more forgiving um, the monetary value for the other things, and uh, for us, I, what we're doing is a huge win. I can, from a recruitment standpoint, not, you know, I'll hit people up or people on our team, and they're saying, "Well, I've always wanted to do something in education." There's not very many markets that or industries that people are going to say that for. So I think it's actually a huge win when it comes to building a great culture with great people that do want to be an impactful company. And it almost helps us filter out people because I'm going to give this away, but I don't really like to. One of the biggest things I look for in interviews and that we look for is a passion for what we're doing over anything else. Uh, and if that's not there, it's, it's, it's almost a, a, comp- a straight, no, from a higher standpoint. And ninety-five percent of the time it candidates that are applying are applying because they want to make an impact the way we we're doing it. So
0: you're 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 basically putting the filter before people join and you want to find people who are already on the same page as you, rather than having like, you know, a post hoc, okay, everybody's here, now we're going to enforce this culture on you, or we're going to try to align incentives and cleverly can't, can't build culture that way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, not not sustainable culture for sure. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's a huge thing for us. And, and every single person except our software developers are either former student affairs professionals or former student leaders at the company.
0: Okay. So that's how you do it with your employees. What about you personally as a founder, when you go home at night, what is it that makes you feel good about how your business is doing and how does that compare to the metrics that you track on a day-to-day basis? Because I know that for any company, especially one with investors, there are certain metrics and numbers that people want to see that don't always align with how things are going on the ground in terms of whether or not your business is making a positive impact in people's day-to-day lives. What do you look at to determine if you're doing a good job and to kind of course correct if you're not?
1: I think one of the coolest things is, is having our customers tell other people they have to use this <laughs> and those people buy in and, and do that. and then further they tell somebody else how amazing it is. And to me, there's like, it's, it's that from a customer standpoint to know we're, we're actually helping them make an impact and seeing the data for these customers, fixing the things that they came to us for. And because we haven't been doing this for too long, because the closing cycle is crazy for education and there's a lot of barriers to entry and time and implementation for a software at this level we're just now starting to get some really cool data out of customers and we're starting to do case studies and things that we're going to be putting out on our site um, that really showcase these things so i don't have any really great anecdotes from a customer specific like data increase but it's seeing those referrals coming through is like kind of like the most heartwarming thing i think i experienced company related on the customer side on the employment side it's that people are moving across the country And taking these opportunities to work with us and then like literally falling in love with this. And I think some of my favorite quotes I hear employees say is I could never go back to working like to anything else besides a company like this because it's just so different and so impactful. And you know, the way we do things is just so much more practical than the principle of, of, of things. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's typical like startup culture that you hear about, but. I think adding that mission driven adds a whole other level of that. So we do, we still do a 22 employees, um, all hands meetings for like 20 minutes every Monday afternoon after lunch. And I just sit there and kind of look at everybody and it's just amazing that everyone's here because of what we've made together and what I, you know, had a dream of one night or experienced. And everyone's like, this is what we want to do to help people. And it's, I think that's really heartwarming on the employment side. And obviously the investor side's awesome. We have a lot of, um, extremely reputable investors um, and even education related investors that are truly believing in what we're doing and where we're going. And I think that's really cool from all angles. Uh, kind of n- another relation I think people can, can see and go back into kind of one of the things you were talking about with building uh, value as well as making an impact. And I think you can look at Zenifits, although, you know, minus some of the culture issues that they've had and some of the shakeups. But if you look at their business model, it's been very interesting. And I've always brought them up as a great example business model for making impact. And HR has always been this obnoxious, annoying thing and a huge barrier to entry and and sometimes massive problem and even causing failure for companies to manage and understand. And especially when it comes to government filings and everything. So I think they, They took an approach to say, we're going to make an impact to make it easier for startups and for companies to manage this stuff. We're going to get rid of all these people that charge way too much for it and take advantage of people for it. And we're going to make it free. So they took this model and said, we're going to get free HR software to do everything you could ever imagine and make it really easy. And then we're going to make our money doing it, uh, helping selling um, health insurance when you're ready for it. Right? So they got big. They grew extremely fast. At one point, they were the fastest growing company in the country, I believe. They had raised like twenty million or like ten million dollars or something, like nine months after launching, and then they were only like two million through that, and raised another like sixty, and they just they just have been crushing it. And it was because they were onboarding customers because they built a great product, it didn't cost anything, and they were making a ton of money because when they were ready for benefits, they were going through them, and they didn't charge for those; they just made the same broker fees everybody else, every other insurance company made.
0: Yeah, they figured out like a very clever way to, to still be profitable as a company while making things way easier and cheaper for everybody else.
1: Exactly. And I kind of call it the redirect. It's, it's we're going to solve an issue for these people, but we're going to make our value for somebody else, right?
0: Is that something that you think you need to build in and design into your company before you even start? Or is it something you could figure out on the way?
1: I absolutely think you can you can figure it out on the way. I think there's a ton of benefit of spending the little amount of time it might take to think about all the possibilities of ways you could do it and have those in mind. And it's something that we've done and that we've considered. And I think, especially from an investment angle, those are things that investors want to know that you're thinking about and that you are capable of.
0: So let's, let's rewind back to the beginning again. And... Let's talk about the first few schools that you onboarded because there weren't many of you. It was who was, was working with you when you got your first schools onboarded?
1: Um, it, honestly, when we got those first schools, it was like in the middle of like raising that that little seed round and bringing other employees on. So it's really just me and um, his name's Andy. He was our he's our now our director of campus development. So basically, director of sales, VP of sales, all kind of the same thing. He had been working with me for months and months just on sweat equity. Um, but was our first beta customer because he was a student government president. And as he graduated, I was like, yo, like, come do this with me. I've already got the product bill. We've got schools that are interested. Just, you know, come on and help me get to more schools. And so he did that. And he's been with me ever since. But uh, yeah, it was just him and I basically for a while. We closed that little round, launched it, brought three people up.
0: Give us a sense of how you were juggling all of these tasks of finding somebody to work with, building the product, selling people on the product as well, raising money, because it's a lot to handle.
1: Yeah, I have no idea how I did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, I, I try to stay very organized, I try to keep a task list. Um, because there's so much going on, One you know, of the big tips that I've always had is writing everything down. Not, not write, but I put it on the Trello or in notes or reminders or whatever tool I'm using that week. Because for me, it's, it's being able to stay focused in the moment. So if, if other ideas come up, I don't ignore them, I don't put them away, I write them down, and I go right back to what I was doing. So by keeping everything at least written down or on the list anywhere, I don't stress about remembering, I don't stress about getting to it, and I'm able to prioritize those when I plan time to do that, and I can focus on a specific thing I need to do at the, at the time. So for me, it's less balancing, and it's more focusing on the one particular thing that's the most important at that, at that time. And there's always something.
0: And what about your, your time investment back then? Were you working eight hours a day? Were you working sixteen hours a day? Or do you do you remember?
1: I haven't worked a day in my life that wasn't typically close to sixteen hours <laughs> in something. So I've, i I'm lucky where I can I can usually get and feel just fine getting about three to five hours of sleep a night. Wow. There's a huge benefit there. Um, I'm and I get that and I'm full of energy the entire rest of the, of, the, of the day. I have no problem with that. Typically the most energetic at the office. So I have a huge, very fortunate there um, biologically, I guess.
0: You're the second person that I've talked to who is extremely prolific and productive and who also sleeps like four hours a night.
1: Yeah, but I think a lot of that also comes from the passion side of it, right? I'm, I'm like, I wake up and I'm like, oh shit, I gotta get in the office and get a bunch of stuff done because that's what I want to do. And, uh, that is to me, what really makes that even more possible, right? Is, is your energy comes from loving what you do all day. Um, so it's, it's, it's very helpful. Um, but back to the kind of question you have on the specific priorities, it's, it's being able to prioritize, understand the importance of things. I, I, I hate staying surface level, so I always go deeper with, why things are important. I always ask multiple levels of why and that helped me prioritize and understand and be more deliberate about how I spend my time. Um, and even now we're constantly changing priorities when, when little things shift and change and. You know, like my CTO came to us and you know, we have a couple of priorities we're working on. And he's like, hey, listen, like I know this was more important, but because this isn't this, this, let's reconsider. And I was like, yeah, switch and right around. And it was a big change for us. We We took people off projects, put different people on different projects instantly. And everyone was like, cool. And that's just normal for us.
0: What kind of breakdown did you have early on in terms of developing the product versus talking to customers? I mean, did you spend, were you switching off every other day or did you spend some dedicated months of just building what you thought people would use?
1: So, no, I mean, we upfront talked to people before we built anything. We basically brought a concept and pitched without demo to people and talked through things with people we knew, people we didn't know, people we got interest to, whatever it took to get in front of our potential customers to learn about the problems they had and what we what we knew we wanted to solve um, and how we wanted to do that. So. We, we spent some good time doing that. And, and, you know, at the same time, almost as building kind of the start of the MVP, but keeping it flexible enough to where if we learned something groundbreaking, you could make that change. Then kind of shifted once we had what we felt was enough input to solely building the initial product. And I'll actually relate this back. We started talking to investors as early as possible. Um, and I can explain why later and. Then once we had a product, we started trying to get people to use it, didn't charge them anything. It was more valuable for us at that point to see them using it, understand them using it, and making sure it was something that did solve those problems. And then, you know, we, of course, iterated a little bit from there. And then able was able to launch the actual MVP that people would pay for.
0: Do you remember if there were any specific assumptions that you guys had early on that got completely shut down once you started talking to people?
1: Yeah, we were charging too little.
0: That's a common one.
1: Yeah, so we would we would come in and, and I wanted to be like the no contract, month to month, no worries, super easy. And they're like, can we pay yearly? Also, like this seems really cheap. Are you sure you can do all this for this cost? And you're like, what? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, totally, okay, yeah. Well, one year minimum, three years if you want it, uh, and we doubled our pricing right off the bat. Um, And they were totally right because we've since continued to raise pricing to be able to offer the level of support, which is, I love to brag, under a minute response time from our customer service team. Um, And uh, it's because we're able to, they're able to afford a slightly higher price that allows us to provide the best solution and the best service with that that we can.
0: And how long after you you kind of got... Through this talking phase and into the product building phase, how long did it take you to build a product that you're able to go to customers with and say, "Will you buy this"?
1: It took us, unfortunately, like a solid like eight to nine months, and that was a lot longer than we had hoped for and what it probably should have taken. But because we were part time, it took that long still, uh, and we were actually working with some really difficult technology. Um, with the analog card readers and because they're using headphone jacks and we're using like credit cards are done fairly well but like student IDs are, are very cheap and that technology is really interesting because we're literally taking a magnetic strip that basically has three different tracks of encoded information similar to like what a record has and all that card reader is is a needle just like a record and it's being moved back and forth, and recording the sound, which is playing as a sound wave in tones into the device. And then we have to decode the amplitudes and frequencies of that sound wave on the server and send that down from zeros and ones to translate into what was actually on that card. So that whole process took a ton of time. Like we, you know, Square doesn't, but some of the other platforms make you press start, swipe the card, hit stop because it's recording audio. So we're doing this this always listening so you can just keep swiping cards. We're doing a lot of background stuff. There was just a lot of actually advanced technology that we had to build in because we wanted to use readers we could get out for free, that they were analog and they were ubiquitous between devices and and all that different stuff. So there was a lot of development um, tech that had to go into that piece. But then I'm also huge on user interface, one of our biggest selling points in education with a ton of legacy stuff out there and people that are just building random things. Um, don't focus on, so the user interface took a lot, a lot of AD testing, a lot of, of, of feedback on that, so is the details that really took the longest for us.
0: And were you the one coding all this, or was your uh, partner helping you?
1: I had a partner that I contracted with initially to build, he built most of the backend, the web services and stuff, um, I built all the front-end and the design, and then I had uh, another friend that owned an agency focus on the mobile initially.
0: One of the challenges that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is finding the right divide between doing things themselves and hiring capable people that they can delegate tasks to. I know I personally struggle with this a lot, and I suspect that it's a bigger challenge for developer founders just because as a developer, you have a lot more opportunities to do things yourself. Looking back on the early stages of presence, were there any areas where you perhaps should have done more delegation and less handling the task yourself?
1: No, I felt that I've always been good at delegating. It's, it's come down to priority. It's, it's, you know, I, I always loved economics classes solely because of the cost benefit model and saying, you know, let the people that are really great at something focus on the things that they're really great at and let everybody else focus on the things they're great at. We even take that from a product standpoint. There's thousands of things we could add onto the product to make it better. But there's also people we start competing with and people doing other things. And when I have conversations about partnerships with those companies or with schools with that, I one of the biggest lines I say is, we're going to focus on what we're really good at. We're going to let them focus on what they're really good at. And you're going to get two amazing products instead of one that just does everything okay. And I think it's the same thing from a delegation standpoint is, you know, let everyone do the things that you want and you're going to end up with a great product. And I think... You know, for a lot of people that haven't built things before, especially with other people, or have a lot of experience doing that for other people, it's hard. It's your baby. You've dreamt of it. You're, you know, it's your it's your life. Whatever you want to say it is, it's hard to let that go for a lot of people. And I think once they do, it's great and. I take the same approach even for management. We, uh, we we hire a lot of people that not you know have not necessarily managed or work with other people directly in the way that we do internally with the company. And I enjoy helping people understand how important it is to delegate and let things go and and you know do that. And I I love seeing that shift in their mind. That as soon as they see delegating starting to work, it's all they do. And it gets really easy once you make that jump.
0: So you're a veteran at delegating. What tips do you have for somebody who's not a veteran, somebody listening in who might be time constrained, who might not have the appropriate skills to do everything themselves and needs to work with somebody else? How do they go about finding this somebody else? How do they vet them, et cetera?
1: Yeah, I was going to say to answer your immediate question with delegation is just do it. You're you're always going to get surprised. Yeah, worst case, it doesn't work out and you're back where you started. Great. Um, You were already working on something else anyway and you can already get back to it. So... From a finding, that's always a big question, especially for like first-time entrepreneurs. And I did it through networking. You know, I try to stay as humble as I can, but it's just a good example. I did everything possible locally, and it's extremely rare someone talented that comes around St. Petersburg doesn't get referred to Meet With Me within the first like few meetings they take with people, just because I've I've really focused on getting to know everyone there is to know, making an impact and helping people here. And I think that's something that you can't really price or understand the value of and something i still have a really big passion for i now work really closely with like our economic development and our mayor and the people in the city here to help bring other companies here and help them align the the resources they might have to help other entrepreneurs here i think only can everyone undervalue networking in in that sense not like going to things and handing your business card out please. Um, but, uh, just getting to know everyone, all the processes so that when it's time for you to want to go do something, it's, you can, you can put a Facebook post out, for example, and say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to build a project. Who wants to work on it? And you just get, you get to the point where you have to choose the person, not necessarily find them. Um, but for people that don't feel networking, um, is, is, is their thing. They don't want to do that. You can always go to meetups, um, especially developer meetups and just hang out and see what people are working on and, and just make a couple friends that have the ability to build things and uh, listen whether it's an investor whether it's an an employee a co-founder a customer all of those people get on board because of inspiration and your ability to inspire them and they get on board through inspiration through stories that's the best way to inspire anybody and again why i started this entire podcast through a story is because it helps you understand it it helps you empathize with it, it helps you believe in it And, uh, that can't ever be undervalued either. Um, so I guess that's my advice for finding, especially technical co-founders.
0: So we're rapidly approaching the end of our conversation here, but I want to wrap up by just discussing the psychology behind being a founder and people who've listened to a few episodes of this podcast know that this is one of my favorite topics of conversation just because of how underrated, uh, founder psychology is in determining how likely we are to succeed with our businesses. You seem to be somebody who's driven a lot by your passion for the work that you do for its own sake. But at the same time, there have to come days where you wake up feeling a little bit more pessimistic or dejected than usual about the outlook for your business. What do you do in those situations? How do you handle it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's constant. Um, As cliche as it is, it's a roller coaster. (laughs) Um, But uh, for me, it's, you know, for every, the, the things that make the ups and the wins so exciting is because there were losses. Like if you just won every day, it'd get just as boring. The fact is that you know those, those losses make the wins that much better. And uh, we talk about it in sales because sales is like the immediate closest to like what it's like to run a company with wins and losses. And when we're training and we're talking about um, like no's and getting rejected in sales is we talk about a yes to no ratio. And how there's always a certain amount of no's you're gonna to need to get to a yes. And I look at it the same way from a wins and losses standpoint day to day is that you know for every loss or forever how many losses, I know there's gonna be a win at some point. And if those losses keep stacking up, it's only gonna be that many more wins that are gonna happen after. And it's it's knowing that um that, that that ratio is there to get you know to help get through it. But I also love the losses. Like inside, because those are new problems that I can focus on or learn from and be able to make sure don't happen again. Um, so to me, that's 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 almost more exciting than the wins. The wins are something that I'm already working hard to get, and it's kind of even subconsciously expected. The losses, although I know they're coming and are around, are the things that are challenging, that are you can turn into opportunities, and that help you grow because um, honestly, you don't really grow from wins.
0: So you're taking like a holistic view, basically, and to prevent yourself from being isolated and focusing way too much on one particular loss. You look at the entire record and say, okay, this is just one part of a, a bigger story. Yeah, you're really great at summing things up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a smart strategy, and I think one of the challenges of, of working on a startup is that you don't always have access to all of the information. You don't know what the long-term results of every decision that you make is going to be, which can be nerve-wracking when you're pouring so much heart and effort into each decision. Um, This is especially true early on. So, In the absence of having any real signal, what you do is you zoom in on individual events and you blow them up in size to way bigger than they really are. For example, if something goes wrong, if you miss out on an important sale or your site goes down or your launch doesn't go as well as you'd hoped, It's super easy to magnify stuff like this and let it get into your head and get into a situation where you're super dejected and demotivated and you want to quit. When in reality, this is just one isolated event that is only a small part of the overall life of your company. And I think what amplifies this is that as a founder, there aren't very many people who share the same roles and the same cares that you do to the same degree that you do. So it can be hard to find people to talk to who can actually empathize with what you're going through. Who do you rely on, if anybody? to talk about the challenges that you face as a founder.
1: Yeah, I try to be as open, transparent, and honest as possible. Um, I'm a big fan of that, and I don't think there's ever been anything that's come out of that negatively. Um, I think keeping employees in, le- in the loop of what's going on helps them stay motivated and helps them understand that the things they're doing make an impact overall, um, which is by far the most motivating thing uh, for employees. And you know, for investors, they're invested. All they want to do is help. Uh, they, 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 they want to make sure that what, what they're there for is both protecting their investment, but also making it worth more if they can help get through something. Yeah. I mean, I have different people I go to for different problems and issues, depending on what they are, if they're technical, I have technical people, if they're, you know, emotional, it might be family or friends or whatever that be.
0: Do you find it's difficult living in a place that's not a tech hub to find people who can relate to the, to the issues that you have and the challenges that you're overcoming?
1: No, although I do feel like if I had to put tiers to it, we're pretty close to a second tier tech city. So, I mean, we have hundreds of startups in the Bay Area here. So although they're not like super dense and I can't walk to a coffee shop as yes, well, you know, I guess I can pretty close to now. But, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be rare that I'm going to connect with someone that I know that's also working on a startup at any place that you go to, you know, as, as I'm here for something like San Francisco. Um, but no, I mean we live in like one of the obviously the most technological time there is i have slack groups i have forums i have direct connections i've now friends with hundreds and hundreds of founders nationwide worldwide that i can reach out to and talk with but i think more than anything it's like i'm in this and i know those things happen and i do not let them get me down in any way and for me it's like i don't i don't I personally haven't had a need for very strong emotional support with things. It's more or less just hitting people up and seeing if I can't figure out a solution to it, how somebody might've approached it on their own. But I have a pretty pretty big philosophy uh, personally that I I basically go along with the idea that nobody knows what they're doing. And I found it to be true almost 100% of the time. And when you take that approach, especially when you're working on something new, if you're truly working on something new and innovative, there isn't anyone that knows what they're doing. You're making it up as you go. And and as long as you realize that, then you know, you're only just trying to get to the right success point. And I, I don't remember who said it or what it was, but somebody famous said, you know, I didn't fail, I I only found a whole bunch of ways not to do it on the way to doing it. Right. So I think all those things kind of mix into the idea that you know, you have to set your own expectations. If you understand things can go wrong, then I feel like when those things do go wrong, it's not as impactful, and the emotional side of things aren't as important to have a need for. It's more the technical pieces or someone to bounce ideas off of.
0: I think that's perfectly stated, especially the fact that nobody really knows what they're doing. I certainly didn't know what I was doing before I started with Indie Hackers, and then at some point during the process, people started asking me for advice for how to do things. And I'm like, I don't, know. I don't know why you're asking me. I have no idea. To end on, I would love to get your thoughts on and to hear your advice for people on how to effectively reach out to people to ask them for advice and help. Because you mentioned that if you weren't able to solve a problem, you would find someone else who did and, and pick their brain. What's an effective way to go about doing that and, and actually get people to respond to you?
1: Honestly, I think people love helping other people as long as it's not like hey I need a bunch of hours of your time is you know If it's like a couple questions or something here or there or whatever, you know, I always love like the hey Can I buy you a coffee? Can I buy you a drink? You know, hey, I'd love to take you to lunch really quick Lunch is always one of my favorites because everyone's got to eat, but if it's online It's just like hey, I got a couple quick questions I'm trying to get through this that you really inspired me on how this this and this worked, you know, and I don't think I've ever not had anybody respond with something helpful, and I even get hit up quite often. And you know, even though I have less than zero time, like everybody else these days, I still find the time to throw a couple answers and tips out uh, to help people. So I think as long as you're um, honest and um, you know open about that and upfront, I think people are more than willing to help typically.
0: That is a perfect answer. I'm going to start forwarding all of my emails straight to Ruben (laughs) Pressman. Let you take care of them. (laughs) Tricked you. Anyway, Ruben, it was great to have you on the podcast. Uh, You're dishing out some serious startup knowledge. Where can people go online to find out more about you and what you're doing?
1: Man, I just took down my personal website because it's been like five years since I've updated it. So RubenPressman.com just goes to my LinkedIn now. How boring. So, no, I mean, basically, I am the company at this point, so um, I don't even have a personal email anymore. It's just my company email, and everything I do with my life basically goes into Presence.io. So that's what we're working on. We have a sweet blog that talks about new employees we hire, new things we're doing. We try to share some startup of knowledge. We've been doing a lot more around culture and inclusivity in our in our blog, which is becoming a huge focus for us. I'm very inactive on social media. I do have a Twitter, so you can follow me at Ruben Pressman. and I have a Facebook, although I typically try to keep that more personal, but it is not private. And I kind of chime in, I post little updates about things that are important, but almost all of it's company related at this point. So I'm kind of boring outside of that. <laughs>
0: You're a walking, talking company. That's, that's basically it. I play
1: some sports in the evenings to make sure I stay exercised and fit, and that's about it.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Ruben.
1: Of course. Thanks so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. And I hope everybody enjoyed at least one thing I said.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you're looking for a way to help support the Indie Hackers podcast, then you should subscribe on iTunes and leave a quick rating and a review. It only takes about 30 seconds, but it actually really helps get the word out. And I would personally appreciate it very much. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other internet entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum. It's basically a community of like-minded individuals just giving each other feedback and helping out with ideas and landing pages and marketing and growth and other internet business related topics. That's www.ndhackers.com forum. Hope to see you guys there.